Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. The FBI conducts a raid on the Mar-a-Lago home of Donald Trump. This is a federal government, and not necessarily Republican or Democrat. This is a bureaucracy that is out of control. We'll get analysis from Albert Moeller. The reality is what we're looking at here is something that, if not unprecedented, is close in American history. We'll look at the wildly misnamed Inflation Reduction Act. It will double the size of the Internal Revenue Service. And after the release of the Dobbs decision, abortion advocates stoop to outright lies. They're simply trying to cause fear and to scare people into not supporting pro-life laws. We have all this and more. I'm your host, Don Crow, coming to you from my home station of WAVA in Washington, D.C. You can catch my program each day through our live stream at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. And take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin in Florida and the Mar-a-Lago residence of former President Donald Trump. On Monday this past week, we received news that the FBI had raided the Miami home of the former president. At issue, we were told, were documents that should have been the possession of the National Archives and Records Administration. Kevin McCullough turned to K.T. McFarland, Deputy National Security Advisor under Trump, from AM570, The Mission, in New York City. When it comes to this type of maleficent behavior from a country, this doesn't seem like the U.S. This is the stuff that uh, Mugabe would do in Rwanda or uh, leaders like Castro or or uh, others would do uh, to their controlled population. This is Banana Republic stuff, is it not, K.T. McFarland? Absolutely, Banana Republic. This is a federal government, and not necessarily Republican or Democrat. This is a bureaucracy that is out of control. Think about it. Federal employees, you can't fire them. They get automatic cost-of-living increases if there's inflation. They have automatically underwritten and subsidized health care, transportation, because they take very heavily subsidized transportation to work. So they're not affected by all the stuff that affects average people. And because they can't be fired, and this is a critical element to remember, they cannot be fired. So the attitude of government bureaucrats who have these jobs for 30 and 40 years is to say, hey, presidents come, presidents go. I'm here forever, and I'm not accountable to anybody. That's why it's absolutely critical for Republicans to be elected, even if you don't like the Republican. Vote right. for the Republican because somebody has to get this bureaucracy back under control. Because otherwise, if they can do what they're doing to Donald Trump on, on, on just made-up charges, the same way the Russian investigation was just a hoax, they knew it was a hoax, but it didn't stop them from targeting people. Well, that's the important thing to point out. It's not like we don't have a track record of these same forces that are now doing this. And, KT, to your own personal story, as you wrote about in your own book, it was people up and down the line that they tried to squeeze because they hated Trump himself and they were trying to get at him. They, they were willing to go to all kinds of what would be estimably illegal means to force that cooperation. And it's not just this. When you think about the, the stuff that the Department of Justice has chosen to get involved in in the last few years and what it hasn't. Just let me list a couple of them. Do you remember the school board meetings that Merrick Garland wanted to send FBI agents to to investigate parents who spoke up against CRT curriculum? Do you remember 
any FBI or DOJ spokesperson coming out and saying, when someone tried to assassinate a sitting Supreme Court justice, we took that seriously and addressed it. Do you remember seeing anything from the Department of Justice on the George Floyd riots that broke out across the country? killing in many times more African-Americans in the uh, riots themselves than have been killed by police in a given year. Did you see anything from the Department of Justice on any of the other wrongdoing as it related to some of the things you mentioned, the, the hoax investigations? It was those same people signing warrants, going to judges, getting this same type of legal cover to go do this that brought about the Russia investigation to begin with. KT, it's a pattern. If it was just one time, you could say, well, okay, maybe they just got misinformed. This is the way they do business. You know, before it happened to me, Kevin, I always assumed that if the FBI came after anybody or a special prosecutor, well, they were probably guilty, right? They were probably guilty. They'd probably done something wrong. They deserved to have the Justice Department and the FBI come after them. It wasn't until it happened to me when I realized that, no, they don't need any justification, that you have to prove yourself innocent. And they have infinite resources. So even though they know you're innocent of a crime, they can try to trick you and cajole you and and do all sorts of maneuverings to get you to either plead guilty to a crime you didn't commit or to implicate others in a crime that you don't think they could commit, or they'll bankrupt you. That's your choice. You could either have your career ruined and destroyed and go bankrupt, which is what happened to me. You can not bankrupt, but they certainly, you know, wiped out my savings. Right. You, can, you can plead guilty to a crime you didn't commit, or you can implicate someone in the case of me. They, they implied they wanted me to implicate President Trump in crimes he didn't commit. And so I basically I just, you know, I came very close to bending to them because they have infinite resources. They can go on forever. You have to pay for your own legal defense. You have to get yourself represented to prove yourself innocent. They just move on to the next. It's, it's the abuse of power, the casual abuse of power is so telling. I mean, the fact that the Justice Department and the FBI, they aren't even going to bother to comment on what they've done at Mar-a-Lago yesterday. It's sort of, they're like, you know, so come get me. And when it's happening to you, you're thinking, oh, this mess is wrong. This, this doesn't happen in America. How could this be happening? And yet right. you have no appeal. They're doing it because they can do it. And they've, as you pointed out in that long list that you've given, of which there are three times as many other egregious abuses, they always seem to get away with it. There are a number of issues as we watch what's unfolding here. There have been earlier administrations that have been plagued by scandal, others who have been the subject of legal inquiry, but this is unprecedented. Not even in Watergate did we see such a breach of private property of a former president. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing program. There was headline news last night, but it didn't come because of a statement from the White House. It didn't come because of a statement from the President of the United States. It came because of a statement from a former President of the United States, the 45th President, Donald J. Trump, who announced on social media that the FBI had, in his words, raided his home and his safe at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach in Florida. The reality is what we're looking at here is something that, if not unprecedented, is close in American history. Now, just to put that into context, consider this. Even as you look at the Watergate scandal in the United States, in which there were very live prospects of a president being indicted for obstruction of justice, if nothing else, so far as is known, there was never a raid on the president's personal residence. And certainly there was no raid undertaken by the Department of Justice and the FBI at the instruction of his successor. That, of course, would have been his former vice president, then president of the United States, Gerald R. Ford. 
What we have here is almost assuredly unprecedented in American history. President Trump indicated his outrage, indicating that his home, what he described as his beautiful home, Mar-a-Lago, quote, is currently under siege, raided and occupied by a large group of FBI agents, end quote. The former president and his family were not in residence there at Mar-a-Lago, but rather were reportedly at their residence at Bedminster in New Jersey. But nonetheless, the raid did take place, and it was undertaken by the FBI under the authority of the United States Department of Justice, and almost assuredly, the FBI had come armed with search warrants and other authorizations from at least some kind of federal court or grand jury. Now, I've spoken repeatedly about the historical precedent that seems to be broken here. This is because this is a huge issue as you think about other nations, a constitutional form of government, the peaceful transfer of power. But the big question is, is America now going to go down the path of other nations that have basically lost their culture of democracy? When an election takes place and the person elected decides to investigate either the candidate who lost or the president or chief executive who preceded him or her in office, that is a sign of a democracy broken. And in the United States right now, clearly we are at a moment of political crisis. Not to overplay that, it's not as if there's an insurrection in the streets. It is to say that we are now in a situation where the Biden administration and the Department of Justice had better very quickly, and I include the FBI in that, had better very quickly indicate why it was considered necessary to search the private residence of a former president of the United States. President Trump said that the raid was unannounced. He claimed that it was not necessary. He said it wasn't appropriate. And he basically accused the Democrats of waging a political war against him and using this invasion of his home, as he characterized it, and the siege of his home as a political act. Now, as you're looking at this, we need to understand that the credibility of our justice system is at stake and the credibility of our political system. To have a former president's residence, personal residence, invaded like this, searched like this, that constitutes something very, very new. Are we entering a phase in which whatever administration in office will try to destroy the opposition, and that includes the previous incumbent, and somehow to gain materials in order to use political leverage or perhaps even the justice system? Now, we need to be clear. There is no current evidence that that is what is happening in this case. The problem is, on its face, this is already very problematic. So problematic that I will just say, as a matter of fact, that the confidence of the American people will require that the Department of Justice and the FBI very quickly determine and make clear why a raid on a former president's personal residence was necessary. Back in February of this year, when it was announced that some documents that should not have been at Mar-a-Lago were discovered there, and when this process began, the archivist of the United States said in a statement, quote, the Presidential Records Act is critical to our democracy in which the government is held accountable by the people. In its report on the situation, on the search at Mar-a-Lago, the Washington Post reported that back in February, the archivist of the United States had said in a statement that representatives of the former president were, quote, continuing to search, end quote, for additional records. Now, here's where the situation just gets more interesting and perhaps you just say a bit more odd. The next paragraph in the Washington Post article reads like this, quote, 
the inventory of unclassified items in the boxes that were recovered earlier this year from Mar-a-Lago is roughly 100 pages long, according to a person familiar with that document. Now get this, the next sentence, quote, descriptions of items that were improperly taken to Mar-a-Lago include a cocktail napkin, a phone list, charts, slide decks, letters, memos, maps, talking points, a birthday dinner menu, schedules, and more, according to one source, quote, speaking on the condition of anonymity to discuss details of the ongoing investigation, end quote. So an anonymous source said that in the inventory of items missing or believed to be missing, and perhaps at Mar-a-Lago, were included a cocktail napkin, a birthday dinner menu, and other things. Now, Assuredly, in those other materials, there might be materials germane to national security. As a matter of fact, given the role of the president of the United States, we might think that's even likely. But still, what are the federal investigators looking for? What was the FBI seeking? Coming up, the Inflation Reduction Act. It will double the size of the Internal Revenue Service. When the Christian Outlook continues in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. The Senate, this past Sunday, passed the Inflation Reduction Act. It was yet another massive spending bill from this administration, $700 billion. It follows on the heels of $280 billion for the CHIPS Act, which came after $500 billion for infrastructure, which was preceded by $1.9 trillion in the American Recovery Act. Democrats ought to give credit to George Orwell in the naming of this bill. As even the Washington Post admitted, it will do nothing to reduce inflation. It will, however, double the size of the IRS. Here's Bob Bernie, my colleague. If you were ever fearful of the Internal Revenue Service, and by the way, you have every reason to be fearful of the Internal Revenue Service, I don't know whether you or someone you know has ever been on the other end of the Internal Revenue Service. They can be brutal, mean, cruel. Well, if you had reason to fear before, oh my goodness, the uh, Internal Revenue Service is about to go on steroids. Well, this was introduced as the Inflation Reduction Act. As a result of this new legislation that's going to cost $430 billion, $430 billion, it will double the size of the Internal Revenue Service. It will allow the Internal Revenue Service to hire 87,000 new IRS Agents. 87,000 people will be unleashed on the American public doing audits. Oh, we're not raising taxes. We're just going to audit you into oblivion. 
We're going to audit you. We're going to find every tiny little thing that maybe you didn't claim, every dollar. How are they going to pay for this? They're going to come after average Americans and audit them to death. The House Ways and Means Committee estimates that under this bill, there will be 1.2 million new audits every year. 1.2 million Americans will be audited every year. And you ready for this? With over 700,000 of those new audits falling on taxpayers making $75,000 or less. That would be most of you. Do you really think they're going to pay for this by auditing billionaires? Billionaires have enough attorneys that they could make an audit last for three, four, five, six years. These audits are not going to get money from millionaires. Most of the revenue will come from common, ordinary, average citizens who didn't cross every T, dot every I, took a deduction that maybe was slightly questionable. In other words, folks, they're coming after you. Not only average citizens, they're coming after Christian organizations. You watch. It's no surprise that the proponents of abortion were upset with the release of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. And it's no surprise in our divided nation that abortion advocates would make their case in media and in the public square. But what we have seen, to put it simply, are outright lies. Thankfully, our friends at Focus on the Family are pushing back. Nicole Hunt of Focus joined my colleague Bill Bunkley on Faith Talk WTBN in Tampa Bay. Tell us a little bit about the new territory we're now finding ourselves in. Yeah, so now what we're seeing is we're seeing that the abortion lobby really is scared. The truth is is that their business is selling abortions. So if fewer women are getting abortions, then that means that they are making less money and that they are less powerful politically. So they're amping up their fear-mongering game by selling lies that really should commonsensically make us say, wait, what? But in fact, what it's doing is it's really confusing middle America. Obviously, one of the most important ones, the first one that I said I list is about women. They say that women who have a life-threatening condition will be forced to carry their baby, even if it means that they die. And this is just absolutely not true, but it is intended to scare those in the middle who think that life is something important and even life in the womb should be valued and there should be restrictions on abortion. This scares them into thinking that somehow they are taking away the life of a mother. And it's just not true. Any state that has an abortion restriction or an abortion ban, they all include exceptions for the life of the mother. So if a woman was in a position where, and it's very rare these days, women who generally have some kind of a life-threatening condition, as they're far enough along in their pregnancy, it is possible to medically both save the mother and the baby because neonatal intensive care units have such, have advanced so wonderfully in the last 30, 40, 50 years. But the truth is, is that if there was a situation where there really was a choice between the mother or the baby, 
the law absolutely protects a woman's right to life. So in addition to that, we have another medical condition, and you wrote about this as well, and that is having to do with uh, ectopic pregnancies. Tell us about this big lie. Yes. So the lie is that women who have an ectopic pregnancy won't be able to receive treatment and that they could die. And so this, again, is also false. Uh, The truth is that an abortion is not the treatment for an ectopic pregnancy, and that's just a scientific fact that's recognized in all 50 states. If a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, and that is when a fertilized egg implants somewhere other than the uterus and it cannot survive, then a woman can absolutely still receive care for that ectopic pregnancy. Here's the bottom line is that if a woman were to try to carry an ectopic pregnancy to term, it would threaten her life because you just can't carry a baby, in, for instance, in your fallopian tube. The baby would die and the mother would die. And so what this does is this, this blurs, again, the truth. Uh, there are no circumstances under which a woman would be refused care if she had an ectopic pregnancy. And that is the truth. How about this one? I can't believe that they're saying that if a woman has a miscarriage, she won't be able to receive any medical assistance. Sure. It's such misinformation. Here's the thing. The abortion lobby likes to equate the unexpected death of a baby in the womb with the intentional killing of a baby in the womb. And the two are simply not the same. And it's very dishonest for the abortion lobby to imply that they are. Uh, In the case of a miscarriage, you have a woman who has a baby in her tummy and that baby's heartbeat unexpectedly stops. In the case of an abortion, there is an intentional taking of life from a baby with a beating heart. Now, the only thing that is similar is that sometimes women who have miscarriages, if their body does not expel the baby that passed, then a doctor will have to go in and remove it, and that's called a DNC. It's the same procedure that is sometimes used in abortion. But here's the thing. At no time is there ever the intentional taking of a baby's life. And the left knows this. The abortion lobby knows this. They're simply trying to cause fear and to scare people into not supporting pro-life laws. Coming up, what is the purpose and meaning of this life? If you take the civilizational moment we're in, obviously the West has as its central dynamic the Jewish and Christian faiths. And yet the West has rejected the faiths that made it. Oz Guinness, when the Christian outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. As we watch the direction of our country and our culture today, it would be all too easy to be discouraged or disheartened. Indeed, there is much to be concerned about, but the veteran writer and scholar Oz Guinness is not shrinking back at all. Instead, He's making the case for Christ anew and afresh once again. Oz has a new book. The title, The Great Quest, Invitation to an Examined Life and a Sure Path to Meaning. 
He was a guest of Eric Metaxas. The question of meaning has been important to you. Where should we start? Well, Eric, this book is for individuals who are searching, who are seeking. But for me, the big picture of the Western world is the background. Because if you take the civilizational moment we're in, obviously the West has as its central dynamic the Jewish and Christian faiths. And yet the West has rejected the faiths that made it. So it's a cut flower civilization. And the question is, can the West be renewed? So people need to grapple with what it is that actually made the West. Now, the same thing in many ways is true for America. And we see this rising tide of religious nuns, people with receding faith. But obviously, many of them have no idea that the faith they've left was considered true. Now, if it was true, people should believe it even if there's no one but themselves left. If it was false, they should never have believed it, even if everyone else believed it, and so on. So there's an extraordinary cultural dimension to all this. But my purpose is individuals, individuals who are seeking. So when you talk about the West, you're talking about Christendom. There's, of course, great irony and tragedy in the idea that uh, the West uh, – unlike any civilization since the beginning of the world, gave us all of the things that we praise, uh, the, the, the sanctity of the individual, the idea that r- racism is a bad thing. There are so many things that Christendom gave us in the context of the West and Europe. And maybe I can ask you, we can begin, what is it within uh, – the West, within Western Christendom, that would lead uh, to people hating the very things uh, th- that gave them their values. It's, 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 there's something bizarre about it. It's like a snake swallowing its own tail. It doesn't, it doesn't quite make sense. So what is it that the seeds of our destruction are, are sort of, uh, they're, they're there in the, in the best of Western Christendom? Well, I think the first great rival to the Christian faith was the Enlightenment. And if you look at the aggressive secularism that's grown up since then, there are really three impulses. One, we don't want God. And you can see that particularly in the French Revolution and all the radical movements that have come out of that. In other words, throne and altar, church and state were united, both corrupt, both oppressive, and the revolution threw out both. We don't want God. The second impulse is we don't need God. Modern prosperity through technology and capitalism and so on. We've got so much to live with. Why on earth do we bother to think of why we're living for? And then the third impulse is the more recent one through DNA and stuff like that. We can replace God. You take Yuval Harari, Homo Deus. Now put those together. You've got a powerful, aggressive secularism, which is out to replace the Jewish and Christian faiths as the dynamic of the West. Now, they won't do it because without God, those things collapse in the long run. But they're trying to. Beyond them, I mentioned that you've got various radical movements. No, please continue. Uh, When you say various radical movements, to what are you referring Well, when I say secularism, 
it's not against the West. It's against the Christian faith, but trying to replace the Christian faith in the West. But if you look beyond that, I call them the color waves. You've got a red wave, a rainbow wave, a black wave, and a gold wave. And each of them in many ways is not only anti-Christian, but anti-Western. So the red wave is clearly classical Marxism and then cultural Marxism. The rainbow wave, quite obviously, the LGBT sexual revolution. And the black wave, the term that is used of everything that grew up of a radical Islamism since the Iranian revolution in 1979. And then the gold wave, the way that so many of our elites are buying actually into ideas that come from the Chinese Communist Party in their attempts to do business with them and so on. So there are very radical movements around, all of them against the Jewish and the Christian faiths. Coming up, a biblical perspective on what it means to be human. Every single human being has dignity and worth because made in the very image and likeness of God. More with Oz Guinness when the Christian Outlook continues in just a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu slash SPP. That's pepperdine.edu slash SPP. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. What is the meaning and purpose of our life? That is a timeless question people have asked for millennia. Whether consciously or subconsciously, people are searching for meaning. Philosophy seeks to provide an answer. The great religions seek to provide an answer. Christ, through the unfolding narrative of Scripture, offers an answer as well. Let's pick up with Oz Guinness and Eric Metaxas talking about the great quest. And, you know, philosophy is incredible. It's basically thinking about thinking. And good philosophy is good thinking about thinking. But philosophy after 3,000 years doesn't come up with the great answers. And the simple fact is you have to go to the great worldviews, the great philosophies of life, the great religions. And when you do that, there are broadly three great families of faiths, the Eastern, Hinduism, Buddhism, the New Age movements, secularism, atheism, agnosticism, materialism, and so on. And then, of course, the Abrahamic, supremely in the West, Judaism, and the Christian faith with their notion of an infinite personal God. And depending which of the families of faiths you choose, you get decisively different answers. And one of my constant arguments is contrast is the mother of clarity. Say the biblical view. Every single human being has dignity and worth because made in the very image and likeness of God. The very highest view of dignity there is. Now, in other words, in the biblical view, we're defined upwards in relation to God, not downwards. You know, I lived in Oxford very close to Richard Dawkins and in a house very close to Desmond Morris, the author of The Naked Ape. But you take things like The Naked Ape or The Selfish Gene 
and the way if we define ourselves downwards as animals or machines or whatever, we frustrate ourselves. The only way to be really deeply fulfilled is to see that we're defined upwards in terms of our creator and we're made in his image. So the answers come out incredibly differently. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of times that the, that the new book, The Great Quest, uh, is is for individuals looking for the meaning of life. And at some point you say it's uh, it's an adventure. At least you begin there. So what do you mean by that? Well, I'm not. It's not an argument that sets out proofs for the Christian faith. And I personally believe the theistic proofs and so on don't work. And to the degree that some people think they work, they don't take you to the Lord God whom we really know as the God of Abraham and the father of Jesus Christ. Not setting out proofs, but describing the journey. And particularly for thinking people, the four phases of the journey. So a lot of people haven't even started. They haven't got to phase one, which is a time for questions. Phase two, a time for answers. Phase three, a time for evidences and phase four, a time for commitments. But each of those has to be thought through in its own uh, pace and its own time so that people can move along. But there's no guarantee. In other words, I've set out the path, but each person has to follow it for themselves. So it's not a book you sit in an armchair, come to the last page and you're convinced of an argument. No. It's a prospectus of setting out a journey. It may take five minutes. It may take five years or 50 years. But a journey which thinking people must take for themselves to think through the meaning of life. I, I have the idea that we're living in a, in a society that um, because of prosperity and technology, we can be endlessly distracted from thinking about the very things that you say are central. Uh, in your experience, what would lead someone uh, to, to want to be a little bit deliberate about asking these questions? Seasons of life is one thing. And then, as you said, there are crises. But then thirdly, you have what Alexander Solzhenitsyn called the crowbar of events. But my interest is mostly in the last one, which my mentor, you know him too, Peter Berger, calls signals of transcendence. People have experiences which puncture what they used to believe and point them to something which would have to be true if that experience is meaningful. And so to follow it, they set out as seekers, signals of transcendence. The most famous, of course, in the last century was C.S. Lewis, the atheist who was surprised by joy, but he couldn't explain joy as an atheist, not happiness, not pleasure joy. And to find out what it was, he became a seeker, as you know, for more than 10 years. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that that Lewis does write about that. I mean, but he was particularly thoughtful, you know, as as people go. Um, But it it is interesting that he did have in in his life what uh, you say Peter Berger calls signals of transcendence, that they sort of hints and clues that, that began him on a journey, uh, and he was intellectually honest and willing to go on that journey, and that's the question, what is the meaning of life? Is there meaning to life? Many people uh, are not asking that question until something happens, and then suddenly they wonder, 
what's it all about? And is it possible that it's all about nothing? So I assume you you deal with that question uh, as well. Well, I also deal with the way you began this section and why people don't think. In other words, if Socrates is right, the unexamined life is not worth living. Many, many, you can almost say most people in America are leading lives not worth living. They haven't thought enough and cared enough to start thinking. And that's the tragedy. Well, if someone reaches stage one, a time for questions, life is called into question for them. That's what constitutes the seeker. Stage two, logically, a time for answers. And that's when they look for the big answers that I described earlier, the, the, the big families of faiths. And that stage is very comparative. If you choose this one or that one, would it answer my questions? Would it make a difference that I'm looking for? It's very comparative. And the quest is for something that's illuminating and adequate. But the third stage, all right, I'm attracted to an answer. It truly looks adequate and highly illuminating to my question. Stage three, a time for evidences. The big question, this one, as you know, is controversial today. Is it true? And despite all the nonsense of postmodernism, that's still a fundamental and absolutely necessary question. The question is, is it true? Coming up, is my worldview grounded in truth? So much of life assumes and requires truth. And for faith, it's incredibly important because it's the ultimate reason to believe. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. As we discuss today the great quest and meaning and purpose in life, we turn now to the most fundamental issue. Is it true? Is my worldview, or yours for that matter, grounded in truth? Once again, Oz Guinness with Eric Metaxas. You were just touching on um, a time for evidence. In, in other words, people ask questions, they examine various options. So now the question is, uh, what do they find? So much of life assumes and requires truth. And for faith, it's incredibly important because it's the ultimate reason to believe. We ultimately believe because we are convinced that it is true, as I said earlier. And if it's true, it'd be true if nobody believed it. If it's false, it would be false if everybody believed it because it's true. Now, there are two main ways that people look into that. G.K. Chesterton is an example of one way, looking at it the big picture way. And if you read Chesterton's description of his coming to faith in his book, Orthodoxy, it's almost like Archimedes' Eureka. Suddenly he sees how this huge spike fits into a huge hole in the universe and all the nuts and bolts fit into place. And they click, 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 and his prose gets incredibly animated and exciting. It's a big picture coming together. And many people are like that. The alternative is C.S. Lewis. Again, as you know, when one of his friends, a hard-boiled atheist, challenged him to read the Gospels. He read them and he never discussed them and read them as a literary crit critic that he was. And when he did, that close-up examination, of course Jesus was an incredible teacher ethically, 
But he also said theological things which were obscene if they weren't true. Was Jesus a liar? Was he a lunatic? And Lewis looks at the evidence of all this and he's convinced it is in fact that Jesus was who he said he was. And it was the close-knit, close-up evidence that convinced him and made him, as he said, the most reluctant convert in England. He didn't want it to be true. He wanted his independence, but he was convinced by the truth. He was the hardest-boiled atheist at Magdalen. And they were discussing all sorts of things, and he said, Jack, have you ever looked to the Gospels? And Lewis said, no. But he was rather shaken because it was a hard-bitten atheist who told him to do that. And he, as a professional literary critic, literary historian, hadn't looked at the Gospels the way he looked at other literature. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, go to ChristianOutlook.com and take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, and never miss these and other great conversations. Thanks for joining us. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. She ran away in a sleep.